0: Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 27th of July, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. And
1: we're going to talk masks in a minute. Uh, you have one with you? Well,
0: I certainly do. I, it's upside down. Yes, let's get it the right way up. There's a mask that I purchased, and I'll just say that on the packet, I was very interested to see it was reusable. I shouldn't wear it if it smelt. It said uh-huh. put it to one side if it smells, um, put it in a ventilated place or wash it. Don't use it near an open flame, not suitable for children under 16 years old unless under adult supervision, not for use in a medical environment or as a dust mask. Uh, Replace it if it becomes too loose, And it was made in China, so that should fill you with confidence.
1: Good, that's good stuff. Well, I mean, aside from masks, of course, uh, we're not allowed to be obese anymore, Brian. And uh, uh, in fact, they're going to stop us being obese by banning advertising of foods that contain fat, sugar and salt before 9 p.m. So that's going to solve the problem.
0: I will be interested to see that, actually, when the power of some of the uh, the big uh, producers is brought to bear.
1: Uh, well, they're claiming that they're going to fight these big producers, but I will uh, hold my, suspend my disbelief until uh, we see the outcome of that. But in the meantime, uh, The Telegraph and the Mail and a whole bunch of others talking about the teachers' unions calling for compulsory face masks for school schoolchildren. Uh, At at least 10 schools, they say, have decided to break with the official government guidance uh, and make face uh, coverings compulsory or strongly encouraged when pupils retire in September. But the unions are saying, really? Well, Pat Roach, who's uh, the general secretary of the NSUWT uh, teachers union, said the government's guidance for schools is now out of step with wider public health guidance and guidance to other employers. Uh, where it's recognised that where physical distancing cannot be assured, face masks should be worn. Uh, So, uh, David, what are your thoughts on that? Welcome to the programme.
2: It's uh, remarkable um, that there is no government policy so imbecilic that some official won't make it actually very much worse. So we've got a situation where children are not at risk from COVID. they're They're more at risk from lightning strikes. And because of this, And having seen the COVID uh, levels fall away to next to nothing, now we're going to force them to wear masks for how long? Well, presumably until there's a vaccine. None of this makes any sense. None of it's rational. None of it's clear thinking. It seems to be driven by something else. Fear, for sure. And this desperation that that, that now we're told to worry about a certain thing, we must worry about it until the point of, of the policy becoming absolutely ludicrous. I don't think that parents will be very impressed with this. I think there'll be a great deal of pushback, and um, we'll see uh, if the unions can uh, form a more coherent, rational policy.
1: Uh, I don't think they will, because they're largely driving this at the moment. But uh, last Wednesday, I think it was Brian highlighted this uh, document here from from the Academy of Medical Sciences, uh, preparing for a challenging winter 2021, 2020, um, And uh, Brian said, well, we're going to cover a little bit uh, on that day, but we would have to continue looking through the document uh, and see what's in there. Now, of course, also last week, we were highlighting the fact that uh, uh, that in Europe, at least, and in the Republic of Ireland, uh, the idea that uh, a person's home is their castle is being broken down. Well, perhaps uh, we get a further clue that that's uh, what's coming for us as well in the UK. Uh, because uh, in this document it say further research is needed uh, into the value of face coverings in specific subgroups, e.g. children, uh, as we've just seen from, uh, from the teaching unions, uh, but also the effectiveness of face coverings in different settings, e.g. households in reducing transmission, uh, and how face coverings should be or could be encouraged as a social norm. Now, this is uh, pretty fantastic, Brian, because that uh, Uh, absolutely fits into the spy bee advice uh, to the sage uh, and the idea that you've got to uh, discredit people that aren't prepared to follow the so-called public health uh, uh, advice. Uh, But this idea that households, that we would be mandated to wear masks in our own homes, uh, this seems like the
0: government stepping a little bit too far well it's, it's way too far mark mike but the the stepping process has been salami so slicing to uh, mixed messages there they've been creeping towards more and more power and getting into your home and allowing officials to come into your home is one of the key objectives takes me back to that german lady who talked to us about the rise of the nazi system and she said it was drip 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 like the drip of an anesthetic and then she said more power to officials until you had more and more people who could walk into your home so she described the culture change we're watching it
1: yeah now last week brian you mentioned there were Mentioned Asthma UK. Just remind, remind us the context.
0: Uh, well, because basically a gentleman who suffered from asthma um, did not want to wear a mask. He thought it was going to cause problems, so he made a telephone call to that charity. I was present at the time when he asked about the, uh, about people with asthma having to wear masks. And a very helpful uh, man in Asthma UK or at Asthma UK said, well, actually, the guidance says that if you've got a good reason not to wear the mask, it causes you distress or you've got uh, medical problems. You don't have to wear the mask. And indeed, we print a certificate which says um, I've got sort of issues. I've got problems. I don't have to wear a mask. And he directed us to where we could print that off on the website.
1: Well, so it's uh, this is a little bit strange, then because the question on the Asthma UK website is should I wear a face mask or face covering? Uh, and the answer is most people with asthma, even if, t- if it's severe, can manage to wear a face mask for a short period of time and shouldn't worry if they need to wear one. Wearing a mask does not reduce a person's oxygen supply or cause a buildup of carbon dioxide. You may have read stories that say that, this, that it can, but this isn't true. Well, I'm sorry, <laughs> Asthma UK, but that is a downright lie, because as, as the UK column has highlighted over the last couple of weeks, Scientific paper after scientific paper is discussing this issue, um, and they absolutely establish that those things are true. So um, I'm not quite sure what has happened here, but perhaps when we start looking at Asthma UK's corporate partners, we get a clue, AstraZeneca, Orion Pharma, and so on. Um, So I don't know what's happened there, Brian, but uh, that does seem uh, a little strange that uh, that somebody saying one thing on a
0: telephone line and publishing something else um, on their website? Well, this appears to be like an astonishing turnaround. Need to do a bit more work on the website to see what is there and what's not there. Um, but if this statement has gone up and they've removed the certificate, it's very simple little certificate you could print off, which at least gave you something that you could show as a reason, a legitimate reason why you shouldn't be wearing a mask. If they've taken that down as well, then clearly something very underhand has, has gone on here. Uh, now, let's contrast uh, that um, story with these reports so we've had a couple of UK column um, emails and this first one says it all yesterday an elderly lady came into my charity shop wearing a mask she started to stagger slightly and looked very distressed I asked her if she was okay she said she did not feel well and thought she was having an asthma attack I was worried she was going to collapse I suggested she remove her mask she did so and said that they caused her great physical and mental distress. Following a telephone call, a close relative came and helped her out of the shop. So that's a pretty factual report. And uh, I, have com- <laughs> I know exactly that that report is, is complete and accurate. We have this one. Uh, I am a qualified GP, I was recently using the London Tube. As I came down the steps after crossing platforms I passed an elderly rather overweight man. He was wearing a face mask but I could tell from his unsteady gait and eyes that something seemed wrong. A few steps on and I decided to go back to him to ask if he was okay. He'd pulled his mask down, his breathing was laboured and I noticed his lips were bluish. I immediately got him to remove the face mask and told him the mask could impair his breathing. He told me he'd had severe pulmonary problems. He had no idea masks uh, could be dangerous for him. So this is qualified medical opinion, warning of the dangers, particularly to people with problems. And I'm just going to highlight this. And I know that uh, Mike New covered this on Friday, but the BBC uh, with promotional videos about why people should wear face masks, And in this clip, it it stresses that you must make sure that the mask covers the uh, top of your nose and your mouth, and there should be no gaps, so it's under your chin. But there's absolutely no warnings at all by the BBC that these masks can be dangerous to people. So a complete lack of due diligence by the BBC. And... um, then, on a positive note, we had this email. Yesterday, I visited a large Tesco store with my girlfriend. I refused to wear a mask. Fortified by my present, my girlfriend refused to do likewise. I could see that many customers were not happy wearing a mask because they removed them at once. Uh, they, the second they departed, the store. However, within the store, including us, there were only four people I could see without masks. One of these wearing a Harley Davidson sweatshirt spotted us and at once removed his mask. As I said to my girlfriend, it requires a leader to remove the sheep from their mm-hmm. pen. So um, dangers and masks uh, being reported by NHS staff themselves. And, uh, and yet they're being promoted with no warnings uh, by many organisations, including the BBC.
1: Uh, and I noticed uh, that was another video where the colours chosen just happened to be the same colours as Chinese the Chinese flags. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, David.
2: I find the uh, comment, the, the revised comment from the Asthma UK organisation, very troubling. Um, I've witnessed on uh, videos on YouTube of people conducting experiments, putting on a mask and monitoring the level of O two that they are breathing in, and they're getting something like. Um, 17 to 18%. And and the, the, the device they're using has an alarm going off. Um, UK requirements here for tunneling, for oxygen deficiency. Um, at, at 19%, the, there's a high level alarm. BS 6164 2011 covers this. The high level alarm means there's an atmospheric problem. The tunnel should be evacuated in accordance with the emergency plan. Self-rescuers which is breathing apparatus should be worn immediately. So at 19%, if you're in a tunnel, it's oxygen starvation and it's a, it's an emergency. But we are putting masks on people to reduce oxygen levels to 17, 18%, and there's no problem with this. And we're doing this for the elderly, for the infirm, for people who are overweight, and out of condition, for people with all sorts of illnesses. It's it's astoundingly reckless is what it is. Now, I've been asking the Scottish government now for uh, three weeks um, for their risk assessment on this policy. I'm still waiting. I've been told that on August the 7th, I will get a reply. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Where is the assessment of the dangers that they're putting the public to?
1: Uh, there isn't one. Brian's asked for risk assessments. Many of our viewers and listeners have written for risk assessments. Uh, no one as yet has managed to get any acknowledgement from anyone that there is such a thing or that any consideration has been given to it. Uh, these
0: people aren't stupid, I don't believe, so uh, they know exactly what they're doing. Well, they, they know that they cannot produce a risk assessment because if you did a proper risk assessment on masks, the minimum that would come out of it would be caveats on certain uh, certain people who had medical conditions, they didn't do a risk assessment. But of course, it, because of course, that would be the lid off Pandora's box, and people would start to realise that these things are not without risks.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. Perhaps an indication of uh, how long a slog we have ahead of us with all this nonsense. Uh, our last wills and testaments uh, will now, the government is going to legalise the remote witnessing of wills, making it easier for people to record their final wishes during the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, they're going to do this through legislation in September. So they're going to actually take a piece of legislation through Parliament in September. This is not, in other words, we're not coming out of this uh, emergency situation anytime soon. Because if they're bringing legislation of this type into Parliament in September, it's going to take several weeks to get it through. And then, why would they do that if they're intending to uh, to relax the uh, the emergency situation within even weeks or months? They wouldn't. This is going on for a very long time. They're saying that uh, these changes will be made as a via new legislation, but crucially, the move maintains this vital safeguard of requiring two witnesses. Uh, protecting people against undue influence and fraud. Uh, those witnesses won't be in the room at the same time that the will signed. They'll be on Skype or on Zoom or something like this. Uh, and the measures will be backdated to the 31st of January 2020. Uh, this is the date of the first confirmed uh, coronavirus case, meaning that any will witnessed by video technology from that date forwards will be legally accepted. Fantastic. In the meantime, just to give an idea of how ridiculous things have got, uh, this is news from Vietnam, uh, and uh, Vietnam has decided to evacuate 80,000 people from a city after three people tested pos- positive for COVID-19. Uh, David, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I, I see you uh, laughing, but but this is,
0: I mean, where does this end? Pol Pot is where it ends, <laughs> and he evacuated a few
2: people from <laughs> cities. Absolutely. Well, this, this is the question. Where do you go with this? It's fear. It's, it's entirely run by fear, and the fear now seems to be affecting uh, our, our wise overlords as much as anybody else. This is completely irrational. Something which has got, uh, CDC reckons a 0.26% uh, case fatality rate. Uh, that's probably on the high side it's no more harmful than seasonal flu. It's a lot less harmful than TB and a whole raft of other things that we deal with as part of the normal risks of being alive. But because this has got this media coverage and focus, everything's panicked, everything's irrational. Um, Where does it end? Well, it, it ends, I suppose, in some very nasty totalitarian way where you, your health and everything about you is monitored by the government in case you are deemed a risk. Uh, absolutely.
1: Uh, but of course, uh, a lot of this hype and furore is being created by the testing regime. Well, uh, the world-renowned, according to the government, UK armed forces. I'm not certain that the government considers them world-renowned. or, But anyway, that's, uh, that's another issue. Uh, so the uh, military mobile testing units, uh, which have been deployed, thousands of personnel at short notice to support the coronavirus testing regime in the UK. They've been working alongside NHS staff and civilians at regional sites around the country and in mobile testing units, uh, because, as we know, under the uh, plans for EU defence, as an example, uh, military and civilian uh, institutions begin to work together. There's fusion doctrine at work, of course. Uh, the mobile testing units provided a vital role in helping essential workers who were the most vulnerable to the virus assess tests. Uh, but this uh, is being handed over to uh, to civilian-only uh, staff from now on. Uh, ben Wall's very excited about it. He said thousands of armed forces personnel uh, were uh, stepped up to serve in the front line in the fight against coronavirus, uh, but they're being stood down from that. Uh, I don't know what your thoughts are,
0: Brian. Well, I, I just find the whole thing outrageous, Mike. We, we've, we've supposedly got a threat, as well, you know, with China and Russia that we're supposed to be uh, bringing out all of our uh, armed forces uh, to, really to a higher state of readiness. Now they're involved in uh, doing this with COVID. And, of course, we've got 77 brigades spying on the British people. So there's something outrageous going on and the... And the uh, military have been drawn into it. Mm. Just to give you uh, uh, this one, we'll end the uh, COVID section on this. And the reason that these emails are starting with yesterday was because we'd done a report talking about mass, and people had responding. But this one says, yesterday I met an extremely senior NHS colleague. When I last spoke with him, he was adopting COVID social distancing and was extremely cautious about what he said with regard to COVID and protective measures. Yesterday he was a changed man and stated that he did not believe in nor support the current COVID policies Believing them to be implemented to quote control the public rather than to protect them. And I can tell you that the, the person who reported that to us is themselves very senior in the NHS. They were stunned but very pleased to see that this particular extremely high level person had had a complete change of heart over what was happening. So progress is being made. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Now, back in April, uh, the government announced that the
1: NHS was to benefit from 13.4 billion pounds debt write off. Uh, So this is Matthew Hancock uh, announced this uh, and uh, the debt was to be written off uh, on the 31st of March 2020. Uh, was consisting of a combination of interim revenue debt, which included working capital loans and interim capital debt. Uh, the final principle is subject to validation by providers and audit, but stands at £13.4 billion, the government said. Uh, these loans will be frozen from the 1st of April when interest will cease uh, and uh, loan principal and outstanding interest extinguished from the balance sheets following a transaction uh, during 2020 and 2021. Uh, so, the debt will effectively be written off uh, by converting the loans to equity, public dividend capital. Uh, adjusted, adjustments will be made to ensure providers' surplus deficit positions are not negatively affected by the debt write-off. The previous system saw trusts owe the value of the loan plus interest. Uh, David, this doesn't look like a debt write-off at all to me. Uh, in fact, it, it looks like uh, they're simply converting the debt into something else uh, and uh you know, public dividend capital payments are made twice a year by by trust to the government. And in fact, uh, the way that it works is that the Department of Health is required by the legislation to make a three point five percent return on all capital assets run and owned by the National Health Service or the difference between assets and, and, and liabilities. Um, so uh, this seems to be part of that. Uh, and public cap- public dividend capital payments have been made since since these NHS uh, foundation trusts were established, um, and this is just adding to that so so the, the, the trusts are going to have to be funded they 're going to have to make sure that they meet their funding requirements and they 're now going to have to pay uh, a, a, a dividend payment to the department of health but we don 't have to worry because uh, this is a a, a, a write off It's a transaction within the Department of Health group, uh, and it will not create additional borrowing or fiscal cost for the
2: exchequer. So we should feel satisfied about it. It, Where where does the money come from? This is very strange. 3.5% for a start, 3.5% dividend rate um, at a point where we have 0.1% Bank of England base rate. I would have thought that the, hot, the, the NHS trusts could actually borrow in the open market at less than three and a half percent. Just saying. Um, <laughs> so how much how much of that is actually been beneficial to them? Um, and it's all part. We'll see this in a minute. It's all part of the budget from the uh, from the Department of Health. Well, where did they get that sort of cash to suddenly write this off? I think there's more to find out here. Uh, but uh, but if they if they're
1: expecting uh, you know regular payments back from the trusts then it hasn't really been written off at all
2: has it? Well, true, but they're taking that onto their books, so they're presumably taking it off of other lenders' books. So there's not been a transaction. How is this not adding to uh, government debt? This is this is very Mussolini esque. Mussolini borrowed an awful lot of money, but it was none of it was on the official balance sheet of the state. Um, and it, it all went fine for, for a year or so. Um, and, and then it didn't. There seems to be um, a lot of borrowing that's not being accounted for. Uh, absolutely.
1: Now, uh, of course, that was back in April. The reason that we're bringing that up again now uh, is because uh, you wrote to uh, the Scottish government about this.
2: Well, I tried to get a little more information because it it, it struck me, well, wait a minute, 13.4 billion is quite a lot of money. Um, I would have thought the Scottish government would be screaming that we want our 9% of that or 10% of that under Barnett consequentials, but there hadn't been a peep out of them. I wondered why. So I asked them um, what was happening in Scotland, and this is the reply I got. Uh, So they they said here, In response to your query, uh, the 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 NHS territorial boards in Scotland received a clean financial slate in 2018-19 as part of the new deal. um, uh, Looking back to the 1930s again, announced by the health secretary, the right not of of in England uh, is managed within the Department of Health and Social Care budget, so there are no Barnett consequentials for Scotland. So we've we've written off £13.4 in England and it has, it's just within the, the normal operating budget. Now, that's quite strange though, because it happened in Scotland a year and a half before, that's what they're trying to suggest, that that answer suggests that the equivalent thing in Scotland and the writing off of debt happened in Scotland back in 2018. And uh, the, the, the the press release, which they linked to, uh, was titled a new deal for NHS boards, um, and it referred to a statement in parliament by Miss Jean Freeman, um, our, our communist uh, health secretary. Uh, announced that the NH, she announced that the NHS territory boards will now be required to set forth finance improvement plans at break-even over the three-year period. Current plans are assessed over one year. Uh, if this condition is met, boards will be offered the flexibility to underspend or overspend by 1% of the budget. And She also said that there is going to be a clean sheet here. Uh, and the Scottish Government will not seek to recoup brokerage paid to territorial boards in the fa- past five years. Brokerage is a strange term, not used correctly, I think, but they go on to define how they're understanding it. And they're saying brokerage is the, is the difference between um, the, uh, the, the their spending and their budget, basically their, their cumulative budget overspend for the past five years. So that's an operational write-off, an operational debt write-off. And the Herald reported this uh, as the as SMP to write off £150 million uh, of debt from Scottish hospitals. Now, this is uh, also quite strange because the pro rata, £13.4 billion in England, in Scotland would be about £1.3 billion. So we're not writing off that, we're only writing off the operational part of it about a 10th. So it's not the same that's happened in Scotland, despite the Scottish government trying to suggest to me that it was. In fact, 90% of the debt has not been written off in Scotland and is still there, um, which is all of the capital debt. So again, there are more things which are not particularly clear about this.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, well, SNP to write off, so that was uh, the Herald reporting
2: that? Yes, that was back in uh, October, 2018. Um, that was the the the, the uh, reporting of this of the parliamentary statement, and the estimate at that point was it was 150 million, which is a far sight from uh, your pro rata from 13.4 billion in England. Yeah. Uh, okay.
1: Well, let's move on to more general economic news now. And uh, well, gold has hit a new high.
2: Gold has hit a new high again. This time it's a new high in Britain and America. So this morning it passed. £1,500 an ounce for the first time. Uh, And I point out before the Bank of England started to um, protect the value of our money and make sure it didn't lose its spending power, uh, an ounce of gold cost four pounds, four, right? So it's now 1,500. That gives you a a good measure on how successful the Bank of England has been in protecting the value of our currency. Um, And uh, we've also got zero hedge here um, commenting that uh, spot gold soars to record high, so it's it's beaten the previous US record high, Uh, as the dollar freefall accelerates. So the dollar's going down and gold's going up. Now this is very interesting, what's happening here, we've got many things happening here. So uh, Zero Hedge quoted Jim Grant. Now Jim Grant is always um, a wise and sensible commentator on the, the lunacy that is the Fed. Uh, and he, he he said, the Fed wants us to believe there, that there will be no inflation. Uh, we have America's fastest peacetime money growth coexist, coexisting with an all-time 4,000-year record low in interest rates. It's the most curious and troubling juxtaposition there. So he's making the point that there has never been a time like this. But don't the Fed saying, don't worry, we have the technology, it will always it will all be fine. And then Zero Hedge put forward this very interesting chart. Now, this is the dollar versus fiat money, and you see the dollar is doing quite well. And the dollar versus gold is dropping like a stone. So what's happening here is all across the world, all the fiat currencies are inflating together. They're all printing. But against gold, which they can't print uh, the, the truth is being revealed and uh, this, the, the, they're talking about uh, Jim Grant's talking about this being a monetary moment uh, and uh, he he, he ex- expressed this as follows so I think what we have here is a monetary moment that is unprecedented and therefore calls for extreme caution and great humility on the parts of all of us now. Extreme caution and great humility. Does that sound like the Fed and the Bank of England and and our various governments to you? Doesn't to uh, me. Uh,
1: no, no, I don't think you could uh, describe those people in that way. No. Uh, so, uh, with that in mind, uh, what happens next?
2: <sighs> well, this is the question. <laughs> this is the question. Logically, there should be inflation, but but there's other things happening here because a lot of the money printing is going into loans to prop up businesses that aren't going to be propped up. So a lot of the money won't actually come into the economy because the loans will fail. At some point, what could happen? Well, stagflation, hyperinflation, many things could happen. The The, the key takeaway is there's, there's never been a time like this. These policies have never been tried like this before in the history of humanity. This is entirely new. So whatever happens, it will be spectacular. Okay. I'll just add to that, David, um, something happening, it will be
0: spectacular. And, of course, it's all going on as far as the general public is concerned under the immense cover, the smokescreen of COVID. Just let's dig into what's really going on at a much lower level. And thank you very much to the gentleman who sent me through this um, document. It's freely available, but he, he was paying attention to what West Sussex County Council were up to. And they've been holding virtual meetings And uh, what are they considering? Well, of course, climate change, never mind the fact that people haven't got jobs, they haven't got money coming in, um, all sorts of terrible things happening to them. Climate change is still a key decision for West Sussex County Council. But what the gentleman picked up on was this economy reset plan. Uh, the cabinet asked to consider and endorse the draft economy reset plan proposals. So here's this uh, famous word reset. Something is going on. The councils know about it. In in principle, the general public don't because nobody's talking about it. So a little bit of detail. So the county council is going to develop the overall reset plan. It says that there's been an impact of COVID-19 on the the, uh, West Sussex economy. And an economy reset plan is needed, which will set out the council's priorities and act as a sub plan to the overall reset plan. Do you understand how many plans are in existence here, Mike? Yes. Well, the
1: overall (laughs) reset plan is the Great Reset, which, of course, is being run through the World Economic Forum. Uh, and this is the first indication that I've seen that this uh, that the Great Reset has come down to the local level.
0: Yes, remarkable, isn't it? So as we see the government giving, we'll call them the city-states. I know we're talking about a county council here, but we we'll call them the city-states are getting more and more power. And here they are with their fingers in the pot over the... Um, over the economy so COVID-19 is having a significant impact on the county's economy business is hard hit significant levels of business failure residents losing their jobs and livelihoods bad implications for the aviation industry the impact on the economy has severe social consequences too so this is the reality it's happening in West Sussex it's happening across the UK but we're not really talking about it or not in uh, mainstream media so the economic landscape highly fluid with much of the uh, impact COVID-19 unknown and unfolding. For example, at the 16th of June, a quarter of West Sussex working residents age 16 plus were furloughed. In Crawley, this figure was 33.7%. And there are concerns about the future of jobs in the coming months as the government starts to withdraw the furlough schemes. This is the reality of what's going on in the country. What are they going to do about it? Most of this is words, So I encourage people to get on that website and have a look by themselves. Um, but it's going to be led by the cabinet with appropriate engagement and governance. Are you be happy with that, Mike. Yeah. They're going to be guided by government strategy. Uh, they're going to be focused on the outcome of partnership working. So this uh, WSCC. Uh, is all part of their partnership workings. They're going to be building our assets and guided by evidence and intelligence. Well, nothing else
1: has happened around (laughs) COVID-19 has had anything to do with evidence or intelligence.
0: No. Uh, Based on creating and nurturing stronger partnerships locally and regionally while recognising each organisation will be responsible for its own approach. This is fusion, I believe, Mm. coming in. Ensuring that the County Council plays a leading role in a recovery and ensuring we're making the best use of resources. And then it goes on to say that they're seeking to influence development of the government's policy. Um, They're paying attention to government programs and funding streams. And this is where the government exerts the power by dangling money in front of these people. They want the money, so they follow the policy. And look, we've got the call here for greener, fairer, fairer and more resilient recovery. So never mind COVID, this is the uh, climate change agenda still being driven through. But this one caught my eye. To date, there has been limited official data from ONS that can indicate the impact of COVID-19 on economic activity in West Sussex. Much of the detailed data so far released has been at national level. So... It comes into some detail in this document where you see how bad it is, but they're saying you can't even get this data nationally. And uh, this is some of the detail they give. The number of job vacancies has plummeted virtually overnight. Biggest hits being leisure, recreation, food and hospitality. The number of business staffed ups was down by a third compared with March last year. The number of dissolved companies up by over 40%. And uh, hospitality, aviation, leisure, the most vulnerable. Crawley is the most impacted area. And the care sector is fragile and under considerable pressure, including uh, through workforce challenges. Coastal towns likely to be at risk, higher levels of deprivation. The employment and skills landscape are being severely impacted, including opportunities for school leavers, funded pre-employment, apprenticeships, the impact on higher education, graduate employment, considerable increases in unemployment. And it says it goes on to say that unemployment levels are increasing dramatically with the only real time data showing a 96 percent increase. Mm-hmm. And yet none of this is coming across on national media. And I just want to highlight it with the BBC here. So here's their Web page from first thing this morning. And as you scrolled through it, utter dross mainly about covid19 not one single comment about the economy and jobs nothing at all so 4.6 billion but suddenly about an hour a little bit over an hour ago this um article popped up the uk economy could take four years to recover um but nobody's too sure what's going on there's no detail in it uh, but apparently we might get a slight rise in unemployment. Well, we've just seen that this is a complete lie. The economy will shrink by 11.5% this year. David, very quickly, because I just want to give two further quotes. Uh, we've seen the economy decimated. And yet the BBC is trying to tell us, well, it might shrink by 10 odd 11%. This, this yeah, is the,
2: propag- the, B, the, the BBC have ceased to be of any... Real use. They're just they're just a, a, actually a waste of time to go to the website now. I did. I thought that was a very interesting uh, analysis from from West Sussex. So their put their principle is central planning. That'll fix things. Uh, we're going to have uh, public private partnerships because fascism fixes things. Uh, it's going to be evidence based, which means we have no theory of what we're doing. Um, it's going to be local and regional because that's what we're meant to be doing, and government is the solution. And I would suggest that all of those things are, in fact, not only wrong, but actively harmful. Actively harmful. Well,
0: just to put the seal on what we've we've covered in this section, here's Andrew Haldane, um, Chief Economist of the Bank of England. The UK economy has clawed back about half the falling output it saw during the peak of coronavirus lockdown, uh, there's been a V-shaped bounce back. Now, apparently a V-shaped bounce back is supposed to be a good thing. Well, but, but, but it's completely not happened. It's completely not happened. Thank you for that, Mike. So, so the BBC article just full of what is clearly untruth. Mm. Uh, I think lies is the correct word. Unsurprisingly, this is Mark Gre- Gregory, Ernst & Young Chief Economist, unsurprisingly, without hard data, a wide range of views on the performance and outlook for the UK economy emerge. Ah, All right.
1: So so Andrew Halton just made it up.
0: Well, both the quotes are in the BBC article, Mike. But at least this man is recognizing what West Sussex says, that when you go looking for the data on the state of the country, it's it's not there. Why is it not there so that the public can't can't see and understand how bad this attack has been on the country mm. okay if you uh, like what the UK column does and you would like to support us then please head over to
1: ukcolumn.org org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there uh, and your help much appreciated uh, now uh, yesterday the defense secretary Ben Wallace uh, published an article in the Telegraph we're putting space at the heart of Britain's defense uh, that's fantastic news uh, he said this um, He said, this week we've been reminded of the threat Russia poses to our national security. That, of course, he's referring to the Russia report. Uh, We've got to keep in mind who who provided evidence for the Russia report. Uh, But he said, with the provocative test of a weapon-like projectile from a satellite threatening the Peaceful use of space. <laughs> was it Brian? a can
0: of baked beans or something they launched? It's not clear. They didn't say. They just said it was weapon like.
1: Uh, so goodness yeah, knows what that means. A
0: lightsaber, possibly.
1: Um, yeah. Well, who knows? But uh, but but Russia is not alone. China, too, is developing offensive space weapons. And both nations are upgrading their capabilities because Russia and China are pressing ahead with this stuff. And the West isn't doing anything. So the United States, UK, they're not involved in this at all. They only want to see the peaceful use of space. Of course they do. Well, the Chinese are really starting to ask questions about what's going on. So before we come back to Russia, we'll just mention this article from uh, uh, Global Times. Of course, Global Times uh, spoke effectively uh, a mouthpiece for the Chinese government. Uh, So it's fair enough, though, because this is what they say. How far will the current China-US conflict? Sorry, confrontation keep going. Uh, will a new cold war take shape? Will there be military conflicts? Uh, and will the possible clashes evolve into large-scale military confrontation between the two? The Chinese asking these questions. The West not so keen to ask these questions. Uh, certainly not publicly. But anyway, just coming back to the the, the Russia situation, Brian. Uh, I just want to remind everybody once again about this, uh, but who was providing the, uh, the information to inform the Russia report was, of course, Christopher Steele. Uh, and uh, we've reported this already, but we'll mention it again. Uh, Lindsey Graham had seen the FBI transcript uh, of, of uh, evidence uh, for the Steele dossier that, was, uh, uh, that started the whole Russiagate uh, Trump situation. And he said the FBI transcript reveals that the primary source of Steele's election reporting was not some well-connected or current former Russian official, but a non-Russian-based contract employee of Christopher Steele's firm. Well, in fact, uh, it's now come to light who that person was. And if you want to find out more, have a look at uh, Real Clear Investigations. Uh, meet the Steele dossier's primary subsource, fabulous Russian uh, from De- Democrat think tank, who's boozy, Past the FBI ignored. Uh, so this uh, person on the screen here is Igor Izzy Danchenko. He's Ukrainian. Uh, and uh, he's a paid employee or was a paid employee of Christopher Steele's Orbis Business Intelligence. Uh, he lives in the U- United States. Uh, he's associated with the Brookings Institute. Uh, And uh, he, in the past, according to this article, was arrested, jailed and convicted on multiple public drunkenness and disorderly conduct charges in Washington. A 2013 drunkenness case against him was prosecuted by Rod Rosenstein, who ended up signing one of the FBI's dossier based wiretap warrants as deputy attorney general in 2017. Uh, interview notes from a 2017 FBI interview with Danchenko report uh, that he confessed he had no inside line to the criminal, Kremlin and was clueless when Steele hired him in March 2016 to investigate ties between Russia and Trump uh, and his campaign manager. Uh, and They say that desperate for leads, he told the FBI he turned, he turned to a ragtag group of Russian and American journalists, drinking buddies, including one who'd been arrested on pornography charges. Uh, he mentions uh, Strobe Talbot, a former Clinton administration official uh, who was president of Brookings, uh, passed along a copy of his anti-Trump dossier to Fiona Hill, who worked closely with Izzy and later joined the Trump administration National Security Council. Uh, Talbot's brother-in-law is Cody Shearer, another of old Clinton hand, uh, who disseminated his own dossier in 2016. Uh, and in August 2016, Talbot called Steele, phoned Steele, Uh, to offer his own input on the dossier uh, he was compiling from Danchenko's feeds. So this is very incestuous. It involves the Brookings Institute or is linked to the Brookings Institute uh, and really quite spectacular. And we've just got to keep in mind that these are the people that are involved in uh, providing the evidence to the Russia report, which is currently being used to demonize Russia. And Christopher Steele also wrote a dossier, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago on Huawei and China. And so... If China's asking, are we heading towards a
2: conflict? I think they've got good cause to ask that question, David. Yes. And what's the Russia document actually, the Russia report based on? There was a wonderful moment of high comedy when a journalist asked one of the, uh, the MPs, Charles Winn, on the select committee, Stuart Hosey of the SNP, um, what's, what's the worst thing that Russia's done that we actually know about? And there was a glorious silence and then jose mumbled that well well this is this is what we don't know so basically we know nothing and and that's russia's convicted on that basis because we know nothing it's it's pathetic meanwhile in america where they used to know something this is revealing just exactly where that came from which is um drinking buddies of uh uh and and, and and pornographers and and people who, who themselves admit that they know nothing. And it's just been made up because Orange Man bad. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, coming back
1: to the BBC for a second then, uh, this is a truly spectacular article, and I strongly recommend everybody goes to read it. Uh, this is uh, uh, what the heroin industry can teach us about solar power. So uh, we're now using the heroin industry as the bastion of Uh, business and and, well anyway let's have a look at what they say here Uh, if you've ever doubted whether solar power can be a transformative technology read on this is a story about how it has proved its worth in the toughest environment possible those are the opening paragraphs Uh, they say uh, the market i'm talking about is perhaps the purest example of capitalism on the planet david i'm quite sure you would like to respond to that
2: Right, okay. Capitalism is about private property. Private property is about being able to be secure and trade freely. The heroin trade is not singled out by its respect for property rights. There's lots of people with guns. And in fact, there's lots of involvement with the CIA. So I think on behalf of capitalism and the free market, I'm going to pass on that one. Okay, okay. Well, let's keep going. Uh, He says this, according to
1: the UN body responsible for tracking and tackling illegal drug production, the UNODC, almost 80% of all Afghan opium now comes from the southwest of the country, including Helmand. Now, we have covered this extensively over the years. First of all, the UNODC, I would argue, is not the body responsible for tracking and tackling illegal drug production. It is, in fact, the body which pulls together the annual corporate report, on the board report on the success or failure of the drugs trade. Uh, and uh, th- that's all it is. It doesn't do anything to tackle illegal drug production. Um, but anyway, Helmand province, of course, this was the part of uh, Afghanistan that Britain in particular was responsible for managing. Uh, and, uh, well, there were allegations at the time that Britain was distributing leaflets to look to farmers in Helmand, suggesting that they should be encouraging them to get involved in the drugs trade. But let's go on with this. Uh, that means pretty much two thirds of the global supply coming from Afghanistan. So not the kind of place you would expect to be in the forefront of efforts to decarbonize <laughs> the economy. David, Afghanistan, drugs trade. This is the forefront of efforts to decarbonize the economy. It is the world's best example of uh, green economy on the planet. I mean, how can you do better than that?
2: It's, it's remarkable. I mean, I'm not watching the BBC or, or, or reading their website. I'm going to start again. This this is the funniest thing that I've seen in a long time. This, this is the best example they've got of the green economy. It's outstanding. Absolutely. Well, when you've got
0: £4.3 billion pounds to play with, of course, you can produce uh, excellent material like uh, this.
1: Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So let's have a look at the uh, World Drug Report. It was released about a, a month ago for 2020 from the UNODC. Uh, and of course, uh, as usual, we will bring up the uh, the graph which shows uh, opium production, opium poppy cultivation around the world, and the dark green uh, bars there are Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, we need to point out, as in fact the BBC did on the article, so they did one thing right. Of course, production stopped during Taliban control in 2001, restarted again following the U.S.-led invasion. Now, of course, the Taliban uh, involved in opium production since then because uh, they have used it to to, uh, uh, bring in revenue for themselves. But when they were in control of Afghanistan, they stopped, effectively stopped opium production production. what else have we got here? Uh, op- this is the uh, opium production and quantities of opium, opium seized graph. So this gives us a clue about what a great job the o- UNODC does, uh, because what are they looking at here? Uh, well, the the the, uh, the uh, on the left we've got uh, production in tons, uh, and that's marked out in thousands, as you can see, from uh, zero to ten thousand tons uh, a year. And on the right we've got uh, uh, the seizures of drugs, and they're marked in 0 to 300 tonnes. So that's really just the cost of doing business there, isn't it, Brian? But anyway, uh, it gets better because, uh, just to reinforce the point about Helmand, this is from the, the most recent Afghan Afghanistan opium survey. Uh, they produce this nice graph, the darkest green, uh, as you can see down the, in the southwest there, Helmand province. Another situation can be found in the uh, desert areas of Helmand, Uh, The desert areas of the uh, Bogra Canal are not provided with water from the Helmand River, but mainly from deep wells supported by solar energy. And, of course, my point here is this uh, report was published in uh, 2018. Uh, Then we have this report from the London School of Economics on the frontiers of development, illicit poppy and the transformation of the deserts of southwest Afghanistan. That was published, uh, I think, in October last year. Uh, And this is saying even in the wake of repeated low yields between 2010 and 2014 and fluctuating opium prices, farmers in these former desert areas, as Helmuth is talking about, adapted and innovated, exploiting herbicides and solar power technology to reduce the cost of opium production and further increase the amount of land under agriculture. So this was published in, I think, October 2019. And so my question then is, why has the BBC chosen to cover this issue now? Uh, it's very interesting because, because it's been talked about by both the UNODC and the London School of Economics, and, other, and I think The Economist published something in the past. Other uh, uh, media outlets have published this, and the BBC is presenting it as, as something new uh, because they want to highlight it as being the bastion of the green economy. It is very, very interesting, but, but it's not news
0: it's not no it's not proper news but if you want news that's going to confuse people and play with their minds it's the perfect sort of news so bbc we take it is now fully supporting the production of of heroin it thinks it's a good thing and it's going to help the green economy it, it absolutely does yes uh, david we're pretty much out of time so let's just do one more uh,
1: topic here uh free to disagree
2: so this is the free to disagree campaign which has uh, been launched in scotland uh, against the SNP's uh, latest attempt to silence us and philosophical fear with their hate crime bill. Um, so, the, uh, the uh, Free to Disagree describe themselves as follows. Um, they say uh, we require free speech, it upholds a free p- press, uh, our artistic and cultural institutions and our politics they say free speech is a vital right that should only be limited by the state when it has strong grounds for doing so. I would disagree with them there. I don't think that the state should ever be allowed to limit free speech. I think uh, conceding that is quite dangerous. But still, they go on to say, uh, it must include the ability for citizens to discuss, criticise, and refute ideas, beliefs, and practices in robust terms. This may inc- uh, this may result in some people being offended, but there is no right not to be offended. So they're very they're very correct on that. Uh, the people in this uh, organisation free to disagree. A campaign of the Christian Institute, uh, but it is a very broadly based campaign. So you see here that we've got Jim Sillars. Uh, Stuart Wayton, who is a criminologist from Abertay, uh, Mary Cairns, who is a Glaswegian journalist, and the National Secular Society allied with the Christian Institute. That shows you how grievous the uh, attack on free speech is in Scotland right now. And uh, Free to Disagree uh, have listed five major problems with the, um, with the draft bill. They say, firstly, the term hatred is subjective and difficult to define. Uh, Secondly, people could commit a stirring up of hatred offence without intending to do so and without actually having done so if the court feels that actions were likely to stir up hatred. This lack of men's rear uh, mental culpability drastically uh, widens the reach of the offence. Thirdly, public order laws uh, would normally include a defence for words spoken in the privacy of your own home, but no such defence exists. So you could be arrested for something that you said over the dinner table. Fourthly, uh, the, the proposed stirring up of hatred offences would criminalise threatening or abusive behaviour deemed likely to stir up hatred. Whilst threatening behaviour is clearly wrong, um, the term abusive is vague and open to interpretation. And finally, uh, free speech provisions uh, only protect the discussion or criticism of religion and sexual orientation, nothing else. So the protections are very narrowly drawn. Um, this is an attack on fundamental liberty in Scotland be quite clear on this it's every bit as bad as the named person and it's it's there to silence and intimidate anyone who would dare speak out
0: and that's quite a state of affairs when of course you've only got one police force police Scotland and there's no separation of powers with uh, the SNP and the judiciary in Scotland
2: uh, there is clearly a politicization of the police force in scotland the single police force as susan deacon the former head of the scottish police authority said as she resigned and the failure of the scottish uh, judiciary to protect us from the name person bill has made it very clear that they will not provide any protection for human rights in scotland
0: yeah serious times well we're on the stops there so we say david thank you very much for joining us Uh, Also, a big thank you to our viewers and uh, supporters, viewers, listeners and supporters, because it's quite clear that many, many more people are now um, putting pen to paper, writing to their MPs, asking questions about what's going on. And uh, we've been really delighted to receive some of those letters so that we can get a feel for um, how MPs in particular are being challenged. If you haven't written a letter to your MP, give it a go. Uh, because it's quite clear that many of them seem to be shocked that a member of the public has dared to actually ask them a question in the first place. So a lot that can be done there. Uh, Did
1: you have just one final comment, David?
2: Yes, just on the subject of heroin and drugs, and uh, if you're looking for a better source than the BBC for what's really going on in Afghanistan, I would recommend The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade by Alfred W McCoy. It's a wonderful book. It's absolutely encyclopedic. It names names and it's been out in various editions for some 20 years and they've never been sued. It's a, it's a first-class piece of work.
0: Excellent, we'll leave it there. Thank you for joining us. We'll Bye. be back at the same time on Wednesday. Mm. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.